Why can't I ever do anything right? Everyone hates me. My life sucks. I don't know why I ever thought I'd make the team. I'm going to fail biology. I'm never getting into college. God, I look so lame in this outfit. Maybe your kid isn't all negative all the time, but chances are you've heard a few of these types of statements come out of their mouth. And for everyone you've heard, they've probably thought at least a thousand others. Join me today as we talk about what to do about all this negativity. I'm Ann Coleman, and you're listening to Speaking of Teens, where we talk about the science of parenting teens and tweens. I've been right where you are. I had a teenage son who struggled with ADHD, dyslexia, anxiety, depression, substance use, school avoidance, and I made a mess of things. So I'm here to help you do better than I did. I talk all the time here about how very stressful it is to be an adolescent. The changes going on in their brain cause a lot of emotional chaos and risky behavior. They become singularly focused on fitting in and being accepted by their peers. They're extremely self-conscious and embarrassed by almost everything. And when you throw in social media and academic pressures or learning challenges, it can be almost too much for many kids to handle. It's no surprise that adolescents are more likely than kids and adults to succumb to negative thinking or automatic negative thoughts. And those thoughts play a huge role in their emotions and behavior. So we need to understand what's going on and how we can help them. So we're going to identify the different types of negative thought patterns our kids tend to engage in and then look at how we can guide them in changing those patterns. Emotions are a lot more complicated than we think. It can feel like our emotions just happen to us, just spring out of nowhere. And if the brain's amygdala is triggered by a threat or a perceived threat in the environment, it is automatic. And as I've explained before, an adolescent's amygdala is hyperreactive and extremely prone to mistaking things as threatening, which means they go into fight or flight mode a lot for no reason at all. Like when we tell them no, or when we say good morning to them, or ask them if they had a good day at school. But more often than not, it's their thoughts, how they think about and interpret a situation that determines the emotions they'll feel. And in turn, those emotions determine how they react to a situation. This is true for all of us. Our thoughts, emotions, and behavior all interact. Therapists call this the cognitive triangle. And if you change one of these three things, your thoughts, your emotions, or your behavior, then you change the other two automatically. For example, let's say you have to give a presentation to 25 coworkers tomorrow, and all you can think about is how much you hate public speaking because you're always scared you're going to mess up and sound stupid. So you get more and more nervous the closer it is to time to speak. And when you finally get up there to give your presentation, you're so freaking nervous that you forget half of what you're going to say and you do mess up, as you assumed you would, which you then use as proof of your ineptitude, which makes you dread the next time even more. 
And what do you think is going to happen the next time? You're going to be more nervous. You're going to get up. You're going to flub up again. And again, that's just confirmation that you can't do it. So what if before speaking next time, you decided you were going to think about it in a totally different way? You decided that, you know what? Who cares how I sound? I'm smarter than most of the people in that room. They have no clue what I'm talking about anyway. So even if I do mess up, they're not going to know. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to sound like a freaking genius. You end up not being nervous and you crush it. So the next time you give a speech, you know you'll do great again. That's how much thoughts impact emotions and our behavior. So what determines how someone thinks about a certain situation? For one thing, it's our inner data, our personal history and lived experiences, how we've been raised, where we've been raised, our culture, worldview, our age even, all the stuff that's rolling around up there in our brain, it obviously plays into how we think about or interpret a certain situation. Something else that plays into how we think about the situation are the current circumstances surrounding that situation, like whether we're tired or hungry or rushed or maybe already upset about something and who is around us. What other people are there? Are we at work or at school or at home? Our inner data combined with the current circumstances impact how we think about that situation, which then makes us feel certain emotions, which causes us to act a certain way. So obviously, this means that different people can think, feel, and react differently to the exact same situation. But very often, our brain can take this information and distort our thinking. And when our thinking is distorted, it results in an emotional experience and response that are also distorted, out of proportion or just mismatched to the situation. Think about how often you've seen your kid react in a way that seems so irrational under the circumstances. Their emotions just seem off to the particular situation. Adolescents, as we've said, are particularly vulnerable to these distorted thoughts. Psychotherapists call them cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions. Usually very negative thoughts. So some people call it negative self-talk, automatic negative thoughts and thinking traps. This negative self-talk is usually related to a person's core beliefs about important aspects of themselves or other people or the world around them. We all do this now and then, but we don't do it on purpose. In fact, many times we don't even realize we're having a negative thought or a thought at all. It's our brain misinterpreting things going on around us and turning us against ourselves. These thoughts aren't based on actual facts or real evidence. They distort our perception of reality. They're irrational or based on some error in our reasoning. That's why they call them cognitive distortions. Just like this character or narrator of a book who gives us their own biased account that we can't totally trust, we have this inner voice, which also cannot be trusted. 
our inner voice is constantly talking to us and giving us its own biased opinions about things. It's often confused and can even engage in what Dr. David calls willful self-justification or deception. The problem is we generally accept what our inner voice says as fact. These thoughts provided by this inner chatterbox that are often very negative, distorted, full of judgment and criticism, and impacted by our emotions and behavior, they are not factual. Aaron Beck was an American psychiatrist trained in psychoanalysis and is considered the father of cognitive behavioral therapy, or what you hear called most often CBT. And way back in the early 1960s, he was the first to notice, or I guess at least the first to write about it, that patients suffering from depression were all prone to this inaccurate or distorted and particularly negative way of thinking about themselves. These patients tended to think about their present, future, and the outside world in such a negative and self-critical way. This is why he invented, I guess you call it, cognitive behavioral therapy. Beck, along with other researchers and proponents of CBT, have identified and labeled a pretty long list of specific cognitive distortions or thinking traps. That's what I prefer to call them when I'm talking to teens, at least. And so that's what we're going to call them. And we'll talk about all those in just a minute. And like I said, it's important to know that we all engage in a bit of distorted thinking now and then. But recognizing when we or our kids are chronically engaging in this negative self-talk is critical. This happens quite often, like we said, in adolescence, and they get stuck in this negative feedback loop. They have a negative thought, which leads to a negative emotion, which leads to a negative response or behavior, which then leads to more negative thoughts and negative emotions and negative behaviors. This chronic negativity can cause a variety of anxiety disorders and depression or can make current mental health issues even worse than they are now. So getting unstuck is what a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is all about, changing the way someone thinks about situations so they can change their emotions and their behavior. The first step, if we want to help our kids minimize their negative thoughts and keep from getting into those negative feedback loops, is to help them learn to recognize that they're actually having a negative thought or falling into a thinking trap. Because these negative thoughts take them straight to the emotion and the behavior before they've even realized they've had a thought at all. They're so automatic, it feels like their emotions and actions just happen to them and they feel powerless. Secondly, once we realize that they're having a negative thought, we then need to recognize or help them recognize what type of thinking trap they've fallen into. This means you're going to need to learn about these thinking traps so you can spot them in yourself and so you can help your kid notice when they're falling into one. So I'm going to walk you through the most common thinking traps right here, but also I'm going to give you all this information in a downloadable PDF for you in the show notes. So don't worry about taking notes, but do pay attention because I'll guarantee you, you'll recognize a few of these from either doing it yourself or seeing it in your kids. 
The first one is just called jumping to conclusions, and that's pretty self-explanatory. It's when we jump to a negative conclusion without any real facts or evidence to back it up. We jump to conclusions in a couple of very specific ways, either by fortune-telling or mind-reading. Now, fortune-telling is when we jump to the conclusion that something in the future is going to turn out bad. And of course, what happens when we predict something bad is going to happen? Yep, it usually ensures that it's going to happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just like the example I gave earlier about being worried about sounding stupid when we give a presentation, you then get all nervous, which causes you to mess up, which just confirms your fears, which pretty much assures it'll happen again in the future. The other way we jump to conclusions is by mind reading. Assuming we know what the other person is thinking, which is always something bad about us. This is really prevalent in teens because what is a teen most focused on anyway? Being accepted and fitting in. It's all younger adolescents think about. So the 10, 11, 12, 13 age group really specifically hone in on this. So if a kid's walking down the hall and their friend doesn't speak to them, they might automatically think they're mad at them for some reason when maybe they just didn't see them or they're worried about something themselves and not thinking about someone else. Catastrophizing is another common thinking trap. And it means just exactly what you'd think it does. This is when we either expect the worst thing to happen or we believe something is worse than it actually is. It could be a current situation or even something that's going to happen in the future. People who catastrophize are generally worriers and they magnify things in their head. They make mountains out of molehills, always blowing things way out of proportion. For example, your sixth grader trips and falls in front of their homeroom class the first day of school, and they think automatically, this is going to be the worst school year ever. Or maybe they don't know the first question on the test, and they start thinking, what if I don't know any of the answers? I'm going to fail this test. Or they spill their drink on themselves, and it's, I can't do anything right ever. Everything's a catastrophe. Then there's overgeneralization. And this is one I saw quite often in my son. It's when we take one negative thing and turn it into a universal truth. For example, you tell your kid they can't go to a party and they think, and they probably say out loud, I never get to go anywhere. You never let me do anything. Or they can't find someone to hang out with one day. And it's no one ever wants to do anything with me. Everyone hates me. Or they get in trouble at school and it's, I can't make a move at school without getting in trouble. Overgeneralization is pretty easy to spot. Then there's labeling or mislabeling, as some people call it. We can do this with other people as well, but when we're talking about negative self-talk, this is when we take one negative quality about ourselves and turn it into our label, our identity. It's an extreme version, really, of overgeneralization. We define ourselves with this descriptor of our one big fault. For example, with a teenager, if they have ADHD or another learning difference, they may define themselves as slow or stupid. Or if they feel they're overweight, maybe they tell themselves they're the chubby friend. Or they don't play sports, and maybe they call themselves unathletic. This can be a really easy thinking trap for a kid to fall into. 
Some of us also fall into the shoulds or should nots thinking trap. This is when we think, I should be able to do this, or I shouldn't have to do that. For example, with your teen, maybe they sleep with a nightlight and they tell themselves, I should be able to sleep in the dark at my age. What's wrong with me? Or I should not need to study for two hours to understand this algebra. They're probably doing a lot of comparing themselves to other kids. Personalization is something else that teens tend to dabble in quite a bit. Maybe it's because teens are very egocentric. This means they tend to think things are about them even when they're not. They blame themselves for whatever negativity is going on in their vicinity. Grandmother gets COVID. It's because they forgot to mask up the last time they went to visit. Or little sister's been sad lately, and it's because they haven't been spending enough time with them. Or maybe their class didn't win the big grand prize for selling magazines or whatever. It's because they didn't get out and sell to all the neighbors. So they take something bad that happened and they make it somehow their fault. Then some teens are really bad about using a mental filter, filtering through all the good stuff and focusing only on the negative. For example, maybe this week they've made a 98 on a test and a 95 on another and a 100 on a third, but they make a 73 on the fourth test this week, and that's all they can think about. They're mortified and horrified that they didn't make more than the 73. They can't think about anything else. They're so focused on it that they totally forget all the other great grades that they made that week, and nothing else matters. Similar to using a mental filter is minimizing or discounting the positive. This is when we tend to minimize or discount anything that happens that doesn't confirm the negative things we think about ourselves. So if your teenager has decided they're ugly and someone gives them a compliment, they might think something like, well, they're just being polite or they have to say that they're my friend. If they think they're bad at algebra and they make an 89 on a test, they may think, well, that was just a fluke. Hey there, real quick, I want you to know about something that if you're anything like me, an anxious ADHD overthinker, you may really need. It's my free guide, Emotional Awareness Strategies. Being emotionally aware is the key to managing your emotions with your kids or anyone else. Inside, I talk to you about the common thinking traps, being able to differentiate between your emotions, and the importance of mindfulness. If you're a yeller, lecturer, crier, or punisher, you need this guide. The link is at the very bottom of the episode description where you're listening. Back to the show. The last one on the list is another distortion my son was an expert in. And I'll have to say this used to be one of my biggies too. It's called black or white thinking or all or nothing thinking. This is when we see things as either good or bad, great or horrible, perfect or crap. For example, you planned a day with friends for your daughter's birthday, brunch, and then a day at the spa. But after a wonderful brunch, they get to the spa. They have a 30 minute wait because the spa got the times confused. At that point, your daughter completely falls apart because, quote, her birthday is completely ruined. And it does indeed ruin the rest of her day. Or let's say your son scores two touchdowns in the first quarter and then gets pummeled every time he gets the ball in the second quarter. And he thinks, 
I just need to pack it up and go home. I've totally lost the game for us. And then he basically gives up. That's all or nothing thinking. I'm going to give you more examples of these thinking traps in the download to help you spot them. And because modeling is one of the very best ways you can help your kids, you need to learn how to notice your own negative thinking and the traps you're falling into. Once you can notice them and categorize them, the next step is to challenge them. You'll do this for yourself in front of your kids, which helps them learn how to do it. And you can also nudge them along to help them when you see these negative thoughts coming out in them. So how do we challenge our way out of a thinking trap? How do we challenge our biased inner chatterbox? How do we prove to ourselves that it's full of crap? There are several different methods you can use to challenge these thoughts depending on the type of thinking trap, and some of them will even work for all the thinking traps. I'm going to briefly go over them here, but again, all of this will be in your download in the show notes so you and your team can refer to it when you need to. The first way to challenge these negative thoughts we'll call fact or fake. This method is just checking the actual evidence for the negative thought. Is there evidence that you're stupid or that everyone's going to laugh or that your life is ruined? Where's the evidence to back this up? Pretend you have to prove to a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt that this thing is true. What evidence would you offer? Would a jury buy it? Most of the time when you do this, you'll come up way short, which should help you see your chatterbox is full of crap. Next is the best friend test. Our inner voice can be extremely negative and downright mean. And when our chatterbox is saying negative things about us, we can ask ourselves if we would say the same exact thing to our best friend. Or we can flip that and ask ourselves if our best friend or anyone who cares about us would say this thing to us. If we wouldn't speak this way to our best friend and we know our best friend wouldn't speak to us this way, why would we choose to speak to ourselves this way or allow our chatterbox to speak to us this way? Next is the reality check. Our inner chatterbox often assumes the most negative thing is happening even when there may be a very neutral or reasonable explanation for what's going on. We should always ask ourselves if there could be other explanations for what has happened. For example, if we see a friend from a distance in the grocery store, but they didn't speak, we should consider the fact that they may not have even seen us clearly, or perhaps they were distracted, or maybe they didn't even recognize us in that moment. Another method we'll call worst thing, best thing is a tried and true way of challenging your negative thoughts, especially when catastrophizing. You can ask yourself a series of questions, starting with what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Then what's the best thing that could possibly happen? And what is in reality the most likely thing that will happen? Even if the worst happens, will it matter a week from now, a month from now? If the worst happens, how could I deal with it? And who could I ask for help? 
walking through everything in this way, even having a plan if the worst does happen, can actually give you peace. Another way to challenge a negative thought is to ask yourself, does this thought help me in some way? Will it help me achieve a goal somehow? Will it make me feel better about myself? Will it make me happier, healthier, or make me try harder to achieve something? Or does this thought just hold me back by keeping me angry or sad, hopeless or stuck? Instead of having this thought, is there something I can do to help resolve the situation or solve the problem and move me forward? Another method of challenging a negative thought is to check our control. Our chatterbox often makes us feel like something is all our fault when there are plenty of other reasons this thing could have happened. We can challenge these thoughts by examining the facts and circumstances around them. How much control did we really have over what happened? Were there other factors involved? Or maybe we can share the blame with other people and other factors. Either way, it can't be all our fault, right? We are not the center of the universe. Okay, so we've noticed we're having a negative thought. We've identified the thinking trap. We have some methods to challenge that negative thought. And now we're going to learn how to reframe that thought from a different perspective. This will help you model out loud with your kids when you're dealing with your own negative thoughts, and it will help you guide them through their negative thoughts. I see reframing as just sort of an extension of challenging the negative thought. It's a way of looking at the situation from a different point of view through a more realistic lens or a more trustworthy narrator. Um, So it's not necessarily about doing a 180 and being all positive and rosy about something. It's just about being more factual. Now, it can take some really hard work for those of us who are stuck in negative thought patterns to stop and flip things around. And learning to think about situations and ourselves in a different way is key. This is what therapists can help us do if we can't do it ourselves. So if your teen is stuck and you can't seem to help them out, it may be time to get a professional involved. So let's go through an entire scenario or two and see how all of this works together down through reframing so you can kind of see it in action. Let's say your son thinks, it's my fault we lost the game if I just made that last goal. Of course, you'd have to figure out that he was thinking this, which you may be able to tell from um, an emotional outburst after the game and maybe asking curiosity questions, or he may be so angry and disappointed in himself that he actually says it out loud. Of course, if he's emotional, you're going to have to first do some emotion coaching, empathizing, listening, and acknowledging and reflecting and helping him with his emotion words, letting him calm down. And then later you can talk and help him problem solve, which in this case needs to involve helping him realize the thinking trap he's fallen into and helping him learn to challenge the thought and reframe it. Be sure to refer back to episode six if you need more help with emotion coaching. So if his thought is, it's my fault we lost the game, if I just made that last goal, you could help him see that he's doing some personalization here, 
falling into the trap of thinking everything bad that happens is his fault. Then help him challenge this thought. The first thing I would do is have him check his control. Have him examine the facts and circumstances that actually led to the team losing the game. He says it's all his fault they lost because he missed that last goal. But is that really what happened? How much control did he actually have over them winning or losing the game? Is there no one else to share the blame with? There's a whole team on the field and a coach. What did they all do? And what about the other team? Maybe they just had some really good players and they were all on their toes tonight. Help him see he's not the center of the universe. He can't be the reason all good things happen and he can't be the reason that all bad things happen either. You could also ask him if having that thought helps him in any way. Will it help him be a better player to feel shame for missing one goal or does it make him feel like a loser? You might also do the best friend test with him. Ask if he'd say this to his best friend or if he thinks his best friend would say that to him. You missed the goal and you lost the game for us. And as you move on into reframing, ask him what he would say to his best friend who just missed a goal and feels like it's all his fault that they lost the game. Get him to actually say the words. Maybe he'd say something like, Look, dude, it's not your fault. We're a team and we lost the game together as a team. You could even ask him if there's a different way of looking at his missing the goal and them losing the game. Is there a less negative way to look at it? What about, I didn't do as well as I know I can, but that's okay. I know what I can do next time to make it better. Or, I don't feel like I did my best tonight, but everyone has an off night now and then. And I'll practice extra hard this week and be ready for the next game. Or, it's not a huge deal we lost tonight. The other team was amazing and we're still 6-1. and one. Or how about, I made four other goals tonight and only two other teammates made one goal each. So I contributed a lot. If you can point out any of these different ways of looking at it, great. But also learn to read the room You know how far you can take it in the moment. You have to be sure he's calm enough to talk and be sure to wait if he's not. Learning how to challenge and reframe will take some work and they may get really frustrated with you if you're constantly pointing out their negative self-talk and trying to get them to reframe. So you may have to really be careful about picking and choosing when to bring it up. And of course, if they won't let you help or they're not getting any better with your help, it may be time to call a therapist. Let's quickly look at one more scenario and then I'll give you several examples in the download. Let's say it's your daughter's first week at a new school and she was invited with the rest of the class to a birthday party. When you ask if she's excited about going, she says, what's the point? I don't know anyone yet and I'm sure they'll all just ignore me. First, of course, remember to empathize and listen and acknowledge her feelings. Use your emotion coaching. Then you can help her see the thinking trap she's fallen into, which in this case is jumping to conclusions, specifically predicting the future. Next, help her challenge this negative thought. Use the best friend test. 
um, worst thing, best thing. Does this thought help me? And finally, help her reframe it. Ask her if she can see a less negative way of looking at this party. Maybe meeting new people can be scary, but I'm a really likable person. And this might be a great opportunity to meet people that I don't have classes with and make some new friends. Just remember, if your teenager is emotional about a situation, to wait until they've calmed down. And you can help them problem solve by examining their negative thought. Challenging and reframing takes patience and an open mind with both of you. And if they're not in the mood, it could backfire. It's very kid and situation specific. You just don't want to come off as trying to force them to be positive about something when they're just not feeling it. It might take baby steps or a professional who's not mom. Now, There are other ways of dealing with negative thoughts that don't involve challenging and reframing. One that may be especially helpful for younger adolescents, maybe the 10 to 13 year old age group, is to have them give their inner negative talking chatterbox a name. Even have them draw a picture of it, if they will. Tell them to imagine what color it would be and what this thing would look like if they could see it. This helps them to think about their inner chatterbox as a separate entity, not really them, to detach from the thoughts and see them more subjectively and talk back to the separate entity that's being so negative and making them fall into these thinking traps. It helps see thoughts as just what they are, thoughts and not facts or evidence. This helps them take their power back from their chatterbox, from these negative thoughts. They can literally call the chatterbox out by name in their head or even out loud and say, stop it. Model this for them. When your inner nasty Nelly starts yelling at you and telling you you shouldn't have cut your hair, you can tell her to shut up out loud in front of your kids and tell them what you're doing. Make it a family habit. This detaching technique is similar to using mindfulness, which is another great way to deal with negative thoughts. But I'll do another episode on mindfulness at some point in the future. It's actually enough for an entire podcast all in itself. And I'm sure there are, those podcasts are out there. But for now, you can explore the Emotional Awareness Strategies Guide for resources. And I'll link to that in the show notes. I strongly urge you to explore mindfulness meditation and get your kids involved. It can be truly life-changing. And another way to deal with negative thoughts and emotions is through journaling. And I've talked about this before, too, in episode eight, which was all about your emotions and the impact on your kids' mental health. Journaling is scientifically proven to help us sort out all of our thoughts and emotions. We become more aware of them and we can label our emotions better, which helps us learn how to regulate and manage them. We can't regulate what we're not aware of and can't label or describe it in detail, right? Now, I can tell you that if I had mentioned journaling to my son when he was a teenager, he would have laughed in my face. And with, you know, ADHD and dyslexia, dysgraphia, writing in a journal was just never going to happen. But 
if your kid doesn't mind writing or even typing or talking into a voice app, then journaling is such an excellent way for them to understand themselves better, to reach a higher level of self-awareness and emotional awareness. All they have to do is just start. Tell them they can hide it or you'll buy them a lockbox to put it in if they want to write and let it be their safe space to articulate everything they're feeling without judgment. Explain the whole concept is to simply write whatever comes into their mind. It doesn't need to be spelled correctly. They don't have to worry about grammar or sounding good or writing clearly enough for anyone else to read it. This is just for them. And tell them that a good time to write is when they've experienced a strong emotion, had a bad day, or gotten really angry, sad, nervous about something, had an argument with someone. Tell them to just start writing everything they can about the situation. What did they think and feel and how did they react? Tell them to try and pinpoint any negative thinking that might have been involved. They can choose to look at the thinking traps and try to decide which one they fell into. They could even write about how they could challenge the thoughts and reframe them. But they don't have to. It can just be writing and figuring things out for themselves as they go along. Pretty soon, they'll start to see patterns emerge. Certain situations that trigger anger or nervousness, they'll see that they have the same particular thoughts over and over again, or the same behavior attached to a particular thought or emotion. And they'll begin to notice these things in the moment as they're thinking and feeling and acting. So if you can get this ball rolling, good for you and for them. Another method of combating negative thoughts, perhaps more indirectly, is practicing gratitude. Studies have shown that keeping a gratitude journal or just writing notes and letters of gratitude to others makes people happier and more positive in general. Gratitude has even been shown to increase physical wellness, to decrease depression, to increase resilience and help develop other virtuous character traits like wisdom, humility, and patience. Studies have shown relationships between gratitude and positive well-being in everyone from early adolescence to older adults. And research also shows that the more grateful a person is, the greater positive emotions and the fewer negative emotions they experience. It appears, however, that these gratitude interventions, like keeping a gratitude journal, likely make a bigger difference in adolescents who are low in positivity, which makes total sense if you think about it. And other studies suggest that such an intervention probably loses its efficacy if repeated too frequently. After all, you can only think of a certain number of things to be grateful for. It's not infinite. So an intervention like writing down five things a day that you're grateful for will, after a couple of weeks, stop being so effective. So perhaps writing down one thing a day or writing one day a week about what you've been grateful for for the week will work better in the long run. I'll link to a white paper by the Greater Good Science Center of UC Berkeley called The Science of Gratitude. It's a really interesting read. There's also a fascinating study on gratitude interventions for children and adolescents that I'll link to all in the show notes. 
Another powerful intervention for adolescents with negative self-views or self-judgment is learning self-compassion. This is not the same as trying to enhance their self-esteem, which has actually been shown not to be such a necessarily desired trait in adolescence, but self-compassion promotes resilience in teens, tweens, and young adults. Kristen Neff, an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, is an expert and pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. I'll link to her and where you can find all of her books and papers and programs in the show notes. Anyway, self-compassion, as Dr. Neff describes it, is compassion turned inward. She says it's the ability to hold one's feelings or suffering with a sense of warmth, connection, and concern. She's proposed three major components of self-compassion. The first is self-kindness, meaning to treat oneself with care and understanding rather than harsh judgment. The second is recognizing that imperfection is a shared aspect of the human experience rather than feeling isolated by one's failures. And the third is mindfulness, which involves holding one's present moment experience in balanced perspective rather than exaggerating the dramatic storyline of one's suffering. She says these three components, self-kindness, recognizing we're all imperfect, and mindfulness, combine and mutually interact to create a self-compassionate frame of mind. And it's this self-compassion that has been scientifically linked to greater happiness and psychological well-being, more optimism, decreased anxiety and depression, and more. Dr. Neff and her research partner, Dr. Chris Germer, designed a program called Mindful Self-Compassion, or MSC, and they teach courses to the public and to educators and mental health professionals. Their program has been adapted for teens by Dr. Karen Bluth of the University of North Carolina and Dominique Sullivan of Canada. I'll provide all the links in the show notes. Normally, they have online courses listed there, but currently, as of the time of this recording in November 2022, I don't see anything listed. However, there are all sorts of other resources and ways to reach out to them, so be sure and check that out. And again, all the links will be there. Okay. I know this has been a lot and you don't have to throw all of this at your teen. I just wanted you to know about all the different ways of approaching and hopefully resolving negative thinking. So maybe if one thing doesn't work, another one will, or maybe a combination of things will work best. I would definitely, definitely throw mindfulness in there if at all possible. One of the most important things I want you to get from this episode is that you need to start calling out your own negative thoughts in front of your kids. You need to challenge and reframe them or journal or practice mindfulness. You have options for how to approach it and the option of involving your kids in tackling negative self-talk. What a gift you could give them if you could help them break their negative self-talk habit before they get stuck. You can create new family habits, practice gratitude at the dinner table, learn mindfulness meditation as a family, learn how to practice mindful self-compassion. All of this will lead to a healthier mind, a more positive outlook, and a happier life. So when you finish listening today, 
go over to the show notes at neurogility.com forward slash 27. I'll have the links to all the resources and even a few I didn't mention. And you can download the bonus guide I'll have for you there. I don't even know what I'm going to call it yet because I still haven't put it all together. As a matter of fact, if it takes me another day or two to get it together, I'll let you know right there on the show notes page and I'll have a link where you can just shoot me an email and I will send you the PDF back or the link to the PDF. This week's been a little crazy too. My son and his sweet girlfriend came to visit from Colorado and I didn't really want to sit at the computer and work while they were in the other room. So I'm a few days behind getting everything done for the episode. So I'm sorry about that, but hopefully I'll have it there and have it ready for you. And a final reminder, if you have a child that is particularly focused on negative thoughts to the point where it's causing them emotional distress and interfering with their daily life, they're anxious or depressed, then do jump in there and help them with it, but also consider getting them to a therapist or a teen coach as soon as possible so that they can get unstuck. Speaking of Teens is the official podcast of NeuroGility.com, an organization I started to educate other moms and adolescents about emotional intelligence. Go to NeuroGility.com forward slash here we go to find all of our free parenting guides and ebooks to help you learn more about your teen and how to parent them in a way that increases their emotional well-being and keeps them safe. Again, you can go to neurogility.com forward slash 27 for this show's um, show notes, the free guide and transcript. Thank you for listening. I hope you got something helpful from it. And if you did, please consider sharing it with a friend or two or on social media. I'd like to reach as many moms as possible. And I love hearing from you. You can email me at acoleman at neurogility.com or you can follow me on Instagram at neurogility and DM me. Until next Tuesday, hang in there, mama.